Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 20. It's not an uncommon scenario. An established institution loses its way and a fresh face is brought in from the private sector to revitalise it. That's how Simon Skinner, formerly Chief Executive of Aegon Island, ended up at the National Trust for Scotland. Echoing the early days of his career as a transformative figure in the NHS, he's brought about big changes at the Trust, sorting out legacy issues and creating a strategy for growth. It's a compelling tale with a poignant personal backstory. I met Simon at the headquarters of the National Trust for Scotland on the outskirts of Edinburgh. Simon Skinner, Chief Executive of the National Trust for Scotland. Nice to meet you. And nice to meet you, Fraser. Now, we'd love to kick off by finding out where life started for you. Where did you come from originally? What was your childhood like? And what sort of career were you thinking about when you were at school? I was born in uh, Trowbridge, Wiltshire, but I don't remember very much of that because my father was at the time working for the Civil Defence and we moved to Sheffield when I was about five or six. Uh, And I grew up most and spent most of my formative years there. My dad was the emergency planning officer for South Yorkshire and my mum was just a lovely uh, housewife. Had an older brother, a younger sister um, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time. Um, But I have to say, sort of careers education in the 70s, as I was leaving school, was do you want to go down the pit? Do you want to work in the steelworks? (laughs) Or have you loftier ambitions? (laughs) And my lofty ambition was, uh, I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I was damn sure I didn't want to do the former. That sounded like too much like hard work. Right. And um, I I got myself uh, on a graduate scheme uh, with the uh, NHS originally and started out a small career in NHS. Is this locally? Um, yeah, initially yeah. in Sheffield and then uh, Derbyshire. Um, right. Uh, and then um, halfway through that, I kept moving around because um, it was kind of unheard of for the junior grades to be prepared to move for another opportunity. But I, I felt I needed to catch up, sort of right. thing. I, um, I wasn't one of these who subscribed to being a millionaire by the 30s, but I, I kind of felt I'd be burnt out by then. Right. So um, I needed to get moving. And did, did, did you have any particular attraction to the healthcare sector or was it just kind of right time right place sort of thing I think it was right time right place they offered a, a, an interesting placement scheme right. and I ended up in um, NHS supplies and procurement um, and I was, I was running some rather large contracts for Trent uh, was then Trent Health Authority right. um, however it didn't pay uh, hugely well and I was running a sports car at the time and uh, a, a lifestyle way above my right. position and I saw an advert for um, Saudi Arabia right. and I uh, jumped ship uh, cashed wow. in my pension and went to work for um, initially a British company called Allied Medical Group, who were running um, one of the military hospitals programs mm. of healthcare. And I went out as a uh, um, uh, with my graduate of uh, Institute of Purchasing Supply qualification as a buyer for them. Right, right. And um, there I met my so procurement. Uh, yeah, yeah, procurement. And there I met my wife to be. It was um, right. It was uh, one of these periods in life where. Um, the Saudiization program, as it was called, meant that I would have a Saudi counterpart, but that they didn't do any work really. You you had to do the work, and right. uh, that was great because I got plenty of opportunity to do things I would never have done, right. like secure a fleet of helicopters at the age of thirty. You know, wow. it was all that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. It was great fun. Yeah, um, I met my wife there. She, uh, she was actually came from Wales, and um, we had a little boy on the way. Six years I was there. Right. 
And then so did you enjoy the, the lifestyle? I did. It was yeah, it was a bit like National Lampoons at the time, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, it had its moments. Um, there was some. I remember getting blown up once. But right. <laughs> really? I, I don't think we can just gloss over that. You... Um, yeah, well, there's, well, there's nothing I did. <laughs> um, I parked my car next to a, a bomb as I was. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, by, by accident, obviously. <laughs> and uh, but um, we, we we came back. We decided, my wife being Welsh, me being English, wherever a first opportunity arose, we'd come back, and it was Greater Glasgow Health Board. Right. And um, I think it was at the time with Margaret Thatcher and the end of mm. the reforms, they wanted someone with a private sector background, and I think sure. this sort of allied medical group, procurement overseas, qualified me for right. that role. Right. And with my NHS grad scheme, I went in there and I had a fabulous time for the six Dukes, years. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Were there any tensions in in the post in terms of that, you know, the, the private private yeah, sector sort was. of principles um, coming in? I was um, taken out within the first few few months and asked to do uh, Pareto style analysis on income generation opportunities, and um, but I was told at the time it was um, Michael Forsyth, I think it was at the time, was the minister, and and the instruction through something called the um, um, Operations uh, um, Excellence Group. It was to try and find anything over 10 million. And I could only come up with two ideas. One was the centralisation of private beds. Um, right. uh, and, the, you know, uh, and the second one was uh, something called an NHS lottery, which I felt using the extant legal position, linking lots of small lotteries mm. together, could generate a lot of money for the right. uh, National Health Service. Yeah. And I understood that went as far as Margaret Thatcher's office. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And was thrown out with a, not on, not in my <laughs> lifetime, whether it be a, a lottery. So that was the end of that. But, but what that kind of did was uh, signal that perhaps this was someone who's got some ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, cut long story short, they put me in charge of reducing waiting times uh, for some of the more uh, longer lists, particularly plastic surgery, cardiac right. surgery, cancer care. Um, and I came up with some new ideas and new ways of working that. And yeah. That brought me to the attention of um, a lovely guy in Scottish Widows. Oh, really? Who said, we're about what to... What was the connection there? Well, I, the, uh, I was in the newspapers for the wrong reasons, I suppose. It was, you know, look at these hideous men in grey suits trying to oh, right. yeah. change the healthcare. I, I'd come up with a, a thesis that if you looked at out-of-hospital interventions mm. um, by positioning uh, and training f- uh, fire crews, for instance, who are only eight minutes away from a fire right. versus ambulances, which could be 15, 20 minutes away yeah. from health, if you position them as perhaps the American system often does... Right you could increase life expectancy mm. or rather life outcome. Um, that got translated into trying to do health service on the cheap, um, etc. So that came to notice. Um, I um, took a, a kind of quasi-legal case that said, whose patient is the patient? Is it the consultants and the consultants list or do they belong to the NHS? Right. Having yeah. determined they belong to the NHS... It was then, well, if you can't get through the list, I'll take them off you because they're my patients and move them to someone who can. And that kind of broke the, the, the power, mm. Uh, mm. power debate. Um, and these kinds of things sort of got me in the above the parapet. Right, right. And um, a guy called Douglas Johnson, who at the time was the customer services director for Scottish Widows, right. at a point when they were thinking about demutualising, wanted to break out of standard thinking and to be fair to him he gave me an opportunity to join them 
Right. Um, uh, which I was it quite on. attractive to you to move out of the, the, the public sector? Did you feel any constraints there and go into... Uh, I did, yeah. yeah. I, I was uh, very sad to go in many ways because mm. I, um, I seriously believe the NHS is a, is a jewel. However, I did believe that um, management in every attempt, whether it was clinical management, whether it was clinical introduction of clinical outcomes and decisioning or whatever, were being uh, kicked around like a political football. And right. um, I, I just felt, why would you want to stay and do that mm. when there's an, you know, another opportunity to try something new? And I joined um, Scottish Widows. Right. Right. So what did the, the role there involve? Well, initially it was um, immerse yourself in customer service, but within about a year, year and a half, we were moving towards demutualisation. Right. Um, and when Lloyd's TSB um, bought mm. Scottish Widows, um, I'd already been taken out to look at what the operating model should look like for the three life companies for administration purposes. Uh, to be fair, I think we, the team I assembled did a really good job and I got all the plays, so sure. that really helped. Um, there was something called the uh, Scottish, uh, sorry, the uh, Management Efficiency Group there, which was um, this sort of top 100 internal things. You had to mm. go through a rigorous programme in Solihull. Um, I think to everyone's surprise, including mine, I got through it. Um, and that meant then that I, I would be moved around like a pawn to, to grow my understanding. Right. I, I had six years with the group. Yeah. Uh, I ended up marketing director uh, at Scottish Widows. Again, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but that's a big, big group. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the opportunity to be a, a, a bigger player in a smaller pond. Right. Came along with the AA, the Automobile Association. Interesting. Sort of just before we move on mm. to that, so to, you know, to go from procurement to a marketing director role, and I, 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 Scottish Widows, of course, the, the widow was such a big icon in Scottish financial services. Less so now, I think. Now it's going to be swallowed up by by Lloyd's. But so, did you have any involvement in the big uh, the big campaigns involving the various iterations of the famous widow? Well, well I, I did. Um, I should say my my role there was it was about two years as marketing director and it was one where in this position as uh, one of the group um, sort of group potential you were you were being supported in your learning through mm. that um, yes I did in as much as um, we would refresh the advert every couple of years and uh, at this point I, I guess it was do we need to refresh um, the, the the widow herself so yes. I had, a, I had a, yeah. a handle in that much right. to my wife's chagrin I think at the time <laughs> right. And so then it was off to off to Surrey for the to work with the AA. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. Um, they were owned by Centrica. Um, the business model was very much they had ten different business lines from publishing to hotel, you know, hotel mm. inspections, through to breakdown insurance, etc., right. financial services. And the idea was to try and bring all of the servicing functions and the sales function under one unit, right. and try and do that more efficiently. And yeah. they had six operating bases around the country, um, rationalise that and drive value. And drive value through being sticky, you know, yes. all these different services that we can provide you, plumbing, breakdown, anything. Mm. Um, the reality was, however, within about 18 months, um, Centrica decided to change the model, put the AA up for sale. Right. They asked a few of us, in, including the finance director, as you might expect, etc., to try and parcel this up and, and sell it on and mm. uh, I was part of the DD team um, and we sold it to CVC Premiera. Um, Tim Parker came in as the chief exec of that stable. Right. Um, I had a week where we were being, how much equity would you like to put in, we're going to float it in 18 months. Well, Tim thought through the business model and said, 
10 business lines is eight too many. We're going to specialize and go back to breakdown and insurance. Yeah. Don't need you now to right, okay. that, so thank you very much. Right. I left there and uh, went to work for Equitable Life. Mm-hmm. And this, the link there was Charles Thompson, who was then the chief executive, come in as the White Knight team to try and find a new home for the trapped right. annuitants, uh, had been my boss at Scottish oh, Widows. I see. Right. And, uh, I really liked him. Yeah. He was um, going to himself be expert witness pursuing at that time the previous directors, the previous auditors. Mm-hmm. So this was big ticket. Um, he would be in court a lot and he needed me to just cover for right, him. Right, yeah. We had a fantastic finance director and team and um, over the period I was there, another six years, we moved a lot of trapped annuitants to Canada Life and other solutions right. whilst we lobbied government. Yes. Um, in lobbying government and in effect suing the regulator, because you know you can't, yeah. it was uh, showing that the, through the ombudsman that the regulator had been asleep on the job in order to persuade the Conservative incoming government to pay compensation. And that again, got, I believe, got my head above the parapet fortuitously because at that moment in my life uh, my wife had breast cancer right. and um, I was working away from home in London coming home at weekends right. that wasn't going to work for a while right. so I wanted right. to come back to Scotland I felt the job was done anyway and um, I saw um, I was approached through a headhunter to go to um, Scottish Equitable which was right. then called Aegon or is called Aegon yeah. Dutch company yes. Life Assurance and I think the connection there, little did I know, was come in and do customer service, which I didn't really want to do again because that mm. was something I'd done in the past. But because we'd been so closely involved with the regulator and others, um, they had a significant legacy problem that they were just uncovering, but I think they knew how it was going to be significant. Right. And so I was asked to do customer service and run this change program for them to get them through um, and the license to trade. Right. And on that journey, um, the, uh, I was rewarded, and I think that's what it was, by Adrian Grace, the incoming chief exec, uh, being offered the chief operating role there. Right, right. Um, which, again, I was thoroughly enjoying, but um, I guess the theme is I like being a big fish in a little pond. Right, right. And along yeah. came the opportunity to um, be the chief exec of Aegon Ireland PLC, right. which was selling um, a, a product, an annuity guarantee, income and capital product it was designing the products it was bringing them to market we had ambition to expand into Europe through Germany a massive untapped market even for Aegon as a Dutch business so it had quite a high profile within the group it had a big challenge it was design and build it was all the things I wanted it was incredibly highly regulated uh, so bi-weekly meetings with the regulator Mm explaining actuarial models and modelling uh, to right, a level, right. um, you know, I, I tax me, I'll be honest. Um, but you, that's you, say, you say a big fish in a small pond, but I mean, it was, you had what, 200 staff, but you had what, the four and a half billion euros in, in funds. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. quite a responsibility. Was it a stressful job? Uh, yes, it was. Um, yeah, it was. But um, I have to say the Irish people... Uh, genuinely are just the best people to work with and um, the the ability to recruit international languages and skills in that in in Ireland is 
is incredible, and Scotland could learn a lot from that. I'll be really? honest. Right. Um, and that's why it was there. Um, there all there weren't that many companies providing this service. It is the primary product for retirement in America, and right. it is in Japan. And our belief was it could be in Europe mm -hmm. under the right financial conditions. It's quite a capital consumptive product set, and um, one of the first challenges I got from the Dutch group was you need 200 million more capital, you need to find it. And mm. so that got me into understanding the actuarial models and right. etc. So, yeah. um, yes, it was. Uh, in that context, I was uh, classified as a, uh, a country chief exec with all yes. the benefits that yeah. went with it. But in comparison to, say, what Adrian Grace was attempting to do with the company here, I did feel like a small fish in a, in a big pond, if right. you like. Right. But a bit bigger. Yeah. If I can get that. Right. <laughs> sorry, that's wrong. Before we move on, Simon, was, was your wife okay? Uh, no, sadly, the uh, cancer came back in the last year. Right, I was in right. uh, Ireland um, uh, fortuitously in many ways because uh, the, the drug that she could move to with secondary cancers right. was not available, wasn't licensed until uh, late last year, this year. And so we had um, two years of. Having that treatment, it cost a fortune. I had to pay for it, right. but at least we could get the drug um, yeah. and we could administer it. And it bought her roughly eighteen months. Right. right. Um, when she passed, um, I was still in Ireland. I've got two, I'd say, grown-up boys, but they're just big lads in uh, in in Glasgow. So mm. they're in their thirties now. And um, I needed to get back here, I felt. Sure, yeah. I didn't really have anything to go to. There was potentially an offer of working within the same financial product set, but abroad. It just didn't seem right. I hadn't got my head clear. Right, right. And um, so uh, it took about six months for me to get, get around mm. that actually I needed to get out and do something. And I made a fatal mistake. I thought that, I know, I'll go and work for a charity because that's putting something back. Okay. And I think yeah. in, in thinking that, what I've experienced is you are, you know, you're sort of um, diminishing the quality of the people that come in here and work hard every day for less money mm -hmm. than you might have expected. The reality is um, the trust... Uh, had been underinvested and under-supported for a long time, but the people here were lovely and right. very hard-working, and I think they must have thought, what a complete plonker he is, you know, he's <laughs> saying he's going to put something back, you know, like a great white knight. Right. Actually, right. Um, that wasn't, that wasn't right. to be. However, um, the, it was very quick, for me it was very easy to identify that when you peeled back mm. the finances of the trust, it had gone through a very rough period in 2008-9, close to bankruptcy. It had brought everything into a central command and control, and nothing was decided, and very little was being spent, and everybody was very risk-averse. But the real risk was staring them in the face, and that has been since about 2008 until when I joined 2014, so 2015, right. there'd been a steady decline in visitation, sure, yeah, yeah. and in particular, therefore, paying visitors, gate receipts, secondary spending. Mm -hmm. And so slowly over time, the only way to balance that would be into the reserves. Mm. The reserves are about six months operating cash, and then the rest is um, there's 200 and odd million in investments, but about 80% is restricted, even to the extent of right. the income. Yeah. And so there hadn't been a lot of investment. There were no systems supporting what they were trying to do. They weren't capable of supporting major capital spend. Yes. And yet they needed to do something that was interventionalist and um, disrupt disruptive to the model. Yeah. So what I did in the first 
classic 90 days to take a review, but it seemed to me we needed to build a model with fresh capability, mm -hmm. but build a model that was decentralised. Right. And I identified six or seven regions that we could go to that had roughly about the same level of capital spend, revenue, income, and then look at the capability gaps. General management as a concept wasn't properly understood. And so people didn't have the background to come in and look at a P and L. They yep. didn't have the background to come in and look at capital program management. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't have business managers. There wasn't a retail and um, catering advice or management structure to go to. Right. And so we built that. Yeah. And we built that largely cost neutral by taking out 2.2 million of the centralized cost base and redeploying that within the regions. Right. That gave us the capability then to deliver a, a strategy that, in, in essence, saw us move from roughly 4 million of capital investment per annum yeah. to 16 million on things that would get people back okay. to experience yeah. their heritage. And it's a very simple concept underneath that, and that is that um, if you, you'll only value Scotland's heritage if mm. you experience it. And so you need to get more people back and engaging with it. The Trust has had roughly 4% of um, the Scottish population through membership represented, but they're very polarised in the demographics. Very young families and the elderly, not a lot in between. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. And the reason for that, well, you, you know, we did a quick research. We didn't need to tell you very much other than not many people knew we were a charity, thought we were a well-funded arm of government. Right. Um, not many people felt that we were at all interesting. Um, my own experience coming to Scotland in 1989, going mm. to Killane Castle, mm. and it was a very dull, um, dull house for rich people stuck in Aspic. You go back, you know, 30 years later, and it's the same experience. Mm. And then you say, well, why don't people come back to see it? Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's self fulfilling prophecy if we didn't do something different. And what we were failing to do, it seems to me, was recognise we're in the experience economy. People mm. want different experiences. They want some fun in that. And what they want is something that's relevant to them. And so it's no longer, for me, about a sense of place. It's about a sense of people and a sense of home. So from historic houses to historic homes. And what is relevant to you and me, then? Right. Uh, and so what are some of the, the actual physical things that you've introduced to these places that are, that are drawing in extra numbers? Well, if we take Brodick, which was closed for two years where mm. we put in fire compartmentalisation, um, why are we going to put everything back out that we had mm. when there are so many different stories we can tell? And the idea is if we put less, then that's more. And if we tell the stories and change them more frequently, then people have a reason to come back. Right. And in the context of Brodick... Um, it is a wonderful shooting lodge, um, the Hamiltons, seat of the Hamiltons for a period, with Beckford silver collection in, etc. The bit that we're telling the story about is um, how that family amassed and nearly lost its fortune on one race. Really? And yeah, and if you look at the silver collection, most of it is around horse racing. It was a passion. Right. And the last one of the last lords had a set of jockey scales, and when people came to the island to be entertained mm. no matter who you were a lady or gent you were weight <laughs> and at the end it was recorded and if you hadn't put weight on you wouldn't know why that, for me that's a fascinating story yeah. so let's tell that story we've mm. reintroduced the scales and we've told we're telling the stories mm. of how they amassed the fortune how they nearly lost it and when you come out there's an opportunity for the children to you know to play a bagatelle and play horse right. racing yeah. it's gently introduced but it gives the sense of what it was mm. about and a bit of fun 
Now, for me, that's balancing fun, reason to go back. We're telling the three latest uh, Hamiltons the next time when we'll change it to the next three. The other thing we've done is introduce a bit of theatre. Yeah, so it's not icebreaking this, it's other mm. people have done it, but people in costume and uh, engaging with you rather than the standard, which would have been four... Volunteers, yes. lovely yeah. people, yeah. standing on each floor, yeah. telling you, uh, trying to tell you, or pick out for them what's important out of the thirty-two paintings of the Royal Family, most of which probably would have been collected at, at another time, and that's what we're trying to do in, in mm. a nutshell: give a people reason to go back if you're a member, um, to be a bit more fun, to recognise that children need a different interpretation to perhaps you might need, mm. and and that's what we're doing there. Um, and you managing to, to bridge that gap between the young families and the and the older membership? Not yet. Yeah. Um, but I think we've, yeah. we've I think we're en route to it. Um, infrastructure projects. We spent nearly four million at Kalein Castle, right. putting in extra car parking or car parking sufficient to deal with if we open that up as a concert venue. Putting oh, right. in plumbing and yeah. electricity to support that. Yeah. Um, putting in new lavatories that could support mm. it. Putting in a play area that supports it four new cafes and uh, mm -hmm. you know, up in the standards. So retail and catering, as an example, over the period 2014 to date, have gone from 2.5 million to 10 million in, in, in turnover. As a business, it's gone from just under 40 million to just over 60 million in that period. Right. Now, all of that growth has to be counted by, are you controlling your costs? Yes. And more or less, it's moving in line. So we need to be a bit more efficient there. Right. But what it means is um, we are getting more people to experience us. Uh, over a million people more came to us this year than they did in 2014. Right. Um, uh, and that extends to paying and free visitors, free visitors mm. as well. I guess you've got... It's, it's not just the fact that maybe... Um, the places need to be more imaginative in terms of drawing people in, but there's so much more competition now, isn't there, than there would have been 20 years ago for, for days out? Well, exactly so. You know, we, we our banner used to be, um, you know, a great day out. Mm. Yeah, but it was a great day out compared to everything. And our, our the sad news for us is a lot of our properties, um, let's just stick with the built ones, but mm. a lot of the built ones are a long way away from conurbations of population, unlike perhaps NTs, the south of the border, where you can literally throw a hat around a million people in a property. Yeah. Um, so we, we've got to have something that's new and exciting to get people out yeah. there. The N500, uh, how could we build on the fact that people are coming around? And in VU, mm. right up in the yes, north, yes. Brint example, so um, we're investing now in a viewing tower that will link Osgood Mackenzie's upper garden with his lower garden, and the vision out over the sea is now being delivered for the first time. Right. That'll be exciting. Will it attract more young people? Not of itself, but if mm. we link that to the interpretation around climate change and what we can do as individuals to contribute to that, um, as the fourth largest landowner in Scotland, mm. you know, we have a big duty to protect that landscape and to show people that actually we're winning, we're doing some things working with nature, not fighting it. Mm. The natural regeneration of woodland at uh, Mar Lodge, the UK's largest natural nature reserve, two and a half thousand hectares of of tree have been brought back in areas nobody thought could be done without the need for planting. Right. Uh, and these things, I think if we get that message across, then I think we've got a really good chance of delivering our real purpose, and that is that heritage value right. across right. the people of Scotland. Yeah. Do, you, do you think there's a uh, slight confusion amongst, amongst members of the public with historic Scotland, and is there mm. an opportunity to, to work together more effectively or potentially even merge? 
Well, let's let's start with work together. Um, we do. Um, of course, they're the regulator, yeah. and they've been floated in the last year, year and a half, as a charity too. And they're looking for membership. Well, we're all going to the same trough. Mm. Um, we're all going to the same well, and 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 asking people to support us. Um, do we have a different of emphasis? Well, theirs is all built monuments, etc. We've got this natural heritage coastline. Um, more flora and fauna that I'm told than the RSPB of, in terms of birds, you know, but does that matter more Monroe's than, uh, than, than the John Muir Trust? It doesn't matter, but what does matter is how we are perceived as guardians of, of that landscape and how we are involving the public in that, and I think we've got a long way to go yet. Right. We're just opening a new centre in Glencoe um, revitalised, revisited the story of the massacre retold, the geology retold. Um, we're calling it a gateway to nature, and I think we need a number of those around Scotland where people go, yes. but we're just not helping them, helping yeah. them understand what they can do and how they can help us. Okay. But it, would it make more sense to merge the two organisations, you think? Well, I think elements of it, absolutely. Mm, yeah. um, by dint of accident uh, of history, we own a number of properties. Mm. Uh, we don't need to own properties as a trust to, to deliver our purpose, which is mm. that promotion and protection, but it's easier to demonstrate it. I think the two organisations already have uh, a background where uh, we have things called a management agreement. Urquhart um, Castle is owned by the trust but managed by Historic Environment Scotland. Nice. Uh, the same is true the other way around at Threve Castle. So there is a model there. Yeah. Um, is there a willingness to bring the two organisations together? I think over time that should be right. My, 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 con my focus has been over the five years of this strategy to prove that the model we've built, which yeah. in many ways is quite different to the way Historic Environment Scotland deliver their experiences, yeah. um, is the right one, and then there should be a debate. If we can't prove this works better, then perhaps mm. not. But we're a small country, and I think uh, we could do better than we do. Mm. And I think there are inbuilt inefficiencies in having two charities within the same space, often doing the same things, and mm. um, perhaps in different ways. And that at some point soon, there should be a debate around that. Right. Um, and I think that's incumbent on um, any uh, charity to look at its purpose and how it's best delivered. So, I mean, you, you say you've been in post for five years delivering this strategy. Is the, is, will there be any big changes coming up in the, or is it just kind of keep pressing ahead with the same approach? Well, I've been here four. My intention is to see at least right. five, but yeah. perhaps not beyond that, because I think there'll be new energy and drive needed. Right. But um, I do think that, um, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are only a year and a bit into real delivery. I think give right. it another two, three years, and then I think we've got really good comparable models to encourage mm. that debate. Right now, you'd be talking in theory and, 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 and nothing to back it up. Um, and if you do move on, Simon, and uh, pass the baton on to somebody else, have you got anything up your sleeve that you would like to pursue in the future? No, I think um, I, I'm, in part, um, I'm, I'm getting remarried in, in oh, August. Right. Yeah, I met right. a, a beautiful right. woman, and um, she's... Uh, younger than me, and, and she tells me I'm looking older than my contemporaries. And uh, so the first thing I'd like to do is uh, is to address adjust that with some relaxation, and then see what happens. Right. But, um, uh, uh, the one thing I do know is, and and often it's uh, I sort of trotted it out when I was younger because it sounded good at interview. Um, I do like a challenge, and um, if I'm sort of set sharpening the pencil on the same thing, I get bored. Right. There you okay. go. Brilliant.
Well, I think a, a fitting last question for you then would be, do you have a favourite uh, National Trust property and, and why? What is it and why? Yeah, I think it has to be Killane Castle. Right. Um, it's always been one of the jewels in the crown for the Trust in terms of just the beauty of the Adams Castle sitting on the edge of the cliff mm. is enough. The setting's wonderful. But I think it's also the potential that that offers us. If we can't make it work there, then I, I think the model can't work anywhere. And aptly, that's where I'm getting married. So. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, wishing you all the very best well, for that. That's, and, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Simon. Very interesting. All right. Thank you. Thanks very much to Simon and thanks for listening. We'll be back again in a fortnight. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.